Welcome to our Palliative Interventional Oncology podcast series. Today we will be discussing palliative ablations of bone and soft tissue tumors. My name is Sean Tutton. I'm a professor of radiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I'm delighted to have Dr. Matthew Kallstrom, who is a professor of radiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Matt, thanks for joining us. I'm excited about our conversation today as it's near and dear to my heart and I know it is to you. I'm glad to join, Sean. Look forward to the discussion. So, Matt, we'll, we'll jump into it. You have defined yourself, I think, you know, you are a world expert in ablations in general, but I think especially in tackling tough soft tissue and bone tumors, sarcomas, desmoids. Maybe just give us a couple minutes of how you got there. How did you get interested in this, this type of cancer therapy? Well, Sean, I think uh, like many people that started start in ablation, really you begin with some of the you know core applications of ablation. I was very fortunate to have Bill Charbonneau as a mentor, you know, one of the pioneers really in ablation, and got started treating you know patients with you know RF, which was really the only technology that was available you know more than 15 years ago, you know treating in liver and kidney cancers, and with the relationships that we had with the medical oncology team, they were having trouble with patients that were failing radiation therapy for metastatic disease. And, you know, basically asked if we'd be able to start, you know, think about treating patients that were dealing really with pain due to metastatic disease and whether or not we thought the technologies that we had might be of benefit. So that was the initial start in terms of trying to do palliative treatments anyway, in terms of treating patients with uh, painful metastatic disease. You mentioned your unique relationship. I think that that's an important concept for those people that are getting started in ablations, getting started in, in cancer therapies, in interventional oncology, interventional radiology. Tell us a little bit about your strategies, about how you grow those referrals, how you forge those relationships with the other cancer disciplines in your cancer center. You know, I think uh, probably like many centers, you know, where a lot of what happens in medicine is relationship-based. For our practice at Mayo, you know, we're very driven from a uh, evidence-based approach, and the pathway to kind of developing a practice is really based on developing objective data. One of the most important approaches is to really use clinical trials as a way of building evidence, and it really, one, builds the data, but also builds relationships. You know, we have a very collaborative environment. So when we have run clinical trials, we try to tackle a problem, you know, together. So we'll include, you know, medical oncology and radiation oncology to find out where we think the best application might be. It does a couple things, you know, one, like I said, it builds relationships, um, but it also, I think, starts to establish referral patterns. People understand where the technology might be best used and they also experience how well it works for patients. So there, as you start to develop some of the data, they start to see where it applies and how well it works. And then you, you know, collectively publish that work. So that path of, you know, either a feasibility trial or a larger trial is one that really cements how we manage these patients and start to develop a clear approach to, you know, the right patient referrals. So I think that makes sense and it's, it's the right answer. But as you touched on before, a lot of this is relationship driven. 
even more important than the evidence-based medicine. I mean, to, in right. my experience, it really comes down to the relationship and the trust that you forge with your referring docs and obviously the patients. Right. Um, is there, you know, a patient that you treated maybe without the evidence that led to that aha moment that, you know, it was that big win that really then sort of kick-started your practice because that medical oncologist, that radiation oncologist, whoever said, wow, this really helped my patient, you know, especially given we're talking about bone and soft tissue tumors, was there that really tough patient with a bone met or a soft tissue met that really changed the game for you? Yeah, I think uh, there are a couple experiences like that, Sean, that were aha moments where you thought, boy, maybe we could do something bigger Palliation means a lot of different things. You know, one is symptoms and the other is avoiding morbidity or kind of managing disease. You expect they're going to develop new metastatic disease, but can you, you know, keep their quality of life high, for example? I remember we treated a patient, uh, he was a, a fireman and he had developed metastatic melanoma and he had developed a single metastasis. It was actually quite large involving a rib. It was causing him pain. He was Gosh, I'm not sure of his age, but somewhere around 50 and a very active uh, individual. And he was referred to us after systemic therapies hadn't worked. He'd also failed radiation therapy. And on PET imaging, you could see he was incredibly avid, so hadn't really touched it. So we uh, looked at the lesion, and at this point, we were using cryoablation. And if we hadn't had a lot of experience, we probably would have you know, done our best and probably not treated the entire lesion. But by the time we got to this patient, we were pretty aggressive and we actually took the approach with a single metastatic lesion that we would be very aggressive and treat all of it. And so we used more probes than we typically would for, you know, like a three to four centimeter lesion. And over time and follow-up found that, uh, you know, we got complete local control in the treatment of this lesion. And what was cool about it, you know, he was a young man and he ended up going out and running a marathon in the next year after having, you know, kind of what he thought was kind of gotten to a point where he didn't really have any treatments that might help him, you know, in terms of morbidity or survival. So it had a really profound impact on his life. And we followed him for many years and treated multiple lesions that popped up over time. And he lived for a long time with a high quality of life and, you know, kept working, very athletic. So that was, that's pretty impressive given that 10 years before that, there wouldn't have been a good option for treatment for him. Yeah, and as I've experienced, and I suspect you experience with this patient and others, once you've done that for that patient, you've really changed their quality of life. You've really preserved it or improved it and allowed them to, you know, live their lives to the fullest that they can. They'll, when they develop a new event or a new lesion, it's often you that they come to directly rather than necessarily going through their medical oncologist, you start to develop that, you know, doctor-patient relationship as a consultant, but you are considered their doctor, so they start going to you primarily. You know, another experience that kind of, you, know, you talk about having that long-term relationship and they look to you for how to manage their disease, treated a patient that had developed metastatic pedicellular cancer, and he was a, a surgeon, cardiovascular surgeon, the chief of his hospital, and when he was initially diagnosed with metastatic disease, he explored what the options might be for him. You know, he looked at radiation therapy and, and ablation, and he had a small metastatic lesion in a paravertebral location. So we treated that, and, you know, he did very well. And over the course of 10 years, we treated him, I know, somewhere on the order of probably 10 times. 
And what was really cool about him was he would come and we would treat him. We'd either treat him or maybe we'd refer him to, you know, radiation oncology or surgery or what was ever necessary. Um, but he did use us as the main portal for managing his care. And we really, I think, became a really important component of his overall care. And we brought, you know, multiple different uh, treatment approaches to managing his disease. And, you know, during that time, his, I remember I met his son at the first meeting. He was about four years old. When he did pass away, 12 years after that first treatment, you know, his son had kind of gotten to the point where he was going to high school and getting into college. And he was very grateful to the fact that he was able to have a high quality of life, continue to operate throughout that entire period. Yeah, I think that is uh, obvious when you state it that way, but for young physicians going into interventional radiology or interventional oncology, I, I don't think it's necessarily in the front of their mind that they're going to have those long-term relationships with their patients. You know, we have remembrance events every year in our practice here where we remember those patients that we've lost. We honor them. We send a card to their family. And it's usually a fairly emotional event. It allows us closure, but it also is this great celebration of the, the privilege we have of being part of these people's lives and actually you know, participating in their care and their journey, as we call it, in cancer therapy. In the palliative patient's you know that they're going to pass eventually, but as you touched on earlier, giving them that quality of life, giving them license to walk down the aisle with their daughter who's getting married or run that marathon or do those things, that's such a huge privilege, in my opinion, as far as being a doctor and being able to, to help these folks. I mean, that's why I love doing what we do and taking care of these primarily palliative patients. Yeah, I agree, Sean. You know, I think the you develop so many relationships with these people and their family. And, you know, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking when they pass away, but, you know, you've really had a incredible relationship with them. And, um, you know, you continue to have relationships. I remember, I know I lost a woman just last year from metastatic colorectal cancer. And, you know, I still interact with her husband and we have dinner when he comes to town. And, you know, these are extraordinarily meaningful. And I think it, it kind of frames how you approach interventional oncology in general in that people get so consumed with turf and things like this, but it really is just bring the best possible therapy to these patients and make sure that when you do start to offer what you do offer, that you know, you know what you're doing and that you apply it in the best possible way and make sure it's the best appropriate treatment for their care. So as you practice over time, I think when we start, we start out as, you know, we can conquer the world and we can treat every lesion that, and every patient that comes to us. And I think over time, you, you know, you get burned. Uh, you have experiences where the treatment didn't go the way you wanted it to. It fell short of your expectations or the patient's expectations. As you have practiced over the years and gained experience, is there a particular lesion? Is there a particular location where you're treating a bone and soft tissue lesion where we just don't have the technology and the the capabilities yet to do a good job with it. Is there one particular either tumor or tumor location that continues to just frustrate you? Yeah, that's a good question, Sean. You know, I know your practice and our practice is very similar. You know, you have to, you, you start to invent new ways to go after these real complex issues. I'd say the thing that probably frustrates me the most is, you know, when you're trying to treat some lesion that's in a close perineural location, 
and you're trying to gain local control and the margin is just so little that you have to use incredible finesse or you know try to monitor and use fluid displacement and you can't be aggressive enough to completely treat it you're hopeful that you can and you put everything you can into it um, and there's no other real option for these patients but that those marginal cases you know either jason to the cord or jason to major motor nerves is probably the single limiting factor for me anyway in terms of how aggressive you can be and so technology that would allow us to get closer and understand if we've completely covered something is really the the biggest challenge for me yeah i share that i i think that we've come a reasonable way in in improving our techniques with neural monitoring and dissection techniques hydrodissection co2 and now more recently perhaps using mr as our guidance method but i still find that those perineural tumors you end up having to pull up short sometimes you get a win because you're in the palliative realm anyway but often You've done your best, but the patient still has significant symptoms or you've left disease behind, and that is a frustrating group of patients uh, to be sure. Well, you know, these are great insights, you know, and your experience and what you've done to contribute to the literature. That's uh, been a huge benefit to all of us that are practicing bone soft tissue ablations in the palliative realm. Uh, We really want to thank you for the time you spent and your insights, Uh, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks, Sean. I'll say the same thing to you. I I really think it requires the entire field to move these things forward and kind of start to build the evidence that allows us to offer these sorts of treatments to patients. Absolutely. I think that those young physicians that are thinking about getting into the space, I would encourage them that this is is the blue ocean, as they say in, in business, in that there's a lot of opportunity here. The patients are living longer with cancer. They're having metastases that can be controlled, but they need these local regional therapies. They need these palliative therapies to maintain their quality of life. And so the the number of patients that we're going to be treating is going to go up. And the number of physicians that are actually focused and passionate about this space is lacking, frankly. We need more interventional oncologists focusing on bone and soft tissue to add to the literature and to add that experience at each cancer center, each uh, hospital. And I think we're in that phase. We're recruiting actively to try to get people excited about this space, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. It's very exciting to see, you know, when you go to, you know, national, international meetings to see the number of people that are starting to offer these sorts of treatments to patients and the, you know, one, the sophistication that they're bringing to it and the inquisitiveness and trying to build the field. It's exciting to me to see that happening. Me too. Well, again, uh, Matt Kalstrom, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Fun talking with you. You too.